Well, before our scripture reading, I thought I would introduce uh, my friend Lane Bailey Brubaker uh, from Tennessee. You've actually, I told Lane this, I won't uh, give it away right now. Y'all have heard a story about Lane, a story or two about Lane. Uh, Lane and I are good friends from uh, graduate school when we were in seminary together. You can uh, throw that picture up, Mark, if you want. Um, yeah, isn't that great? Uh, Lane and I, amongst other things, we uh, worked in a psychiatric hospital together as chaplains. And uh, now Lane uh, works in New Orleans with the Young Adult Volunteer Program for the Presbyterian Church, which is like... Uh, sort of like an Amer- a one-year AmeriCorps experience for young adults that she runs. Uh, and we're, in a minute, we're going to do a little dramatic reading of our scripture. So I thought I'd also introduce her husband, Crawford. Um, and I've got a picture for Crawford that will make us, uh, <laughs> make you think like, huh, was Crawford show? Is that the Heimlich? <laughs> and that, if so, that's the, the most loving Heimlich ever. Anyways. I don't, it was a decade ago, and I don't remember the exact circumstances of that picture, but I showed it, I guess. Um, Crawford is a hospice chaplain um, and has the, the sacred task of walking with people as they near death. Um, and together, Lane and Crawford uh, started what we call a new worshiping community, sort of an alternative type of church that I know, Urban Grace will totally dig. It's called Okra Abbey, like the vegetable. And it is uh, an abbey in the sense that it is self-sufficient. It uses all of its abundance to care for the poor and needy and give refuge to the outcast and persecuted. And it is in a really tough neighborhood in New Orleans. And it's essentially a garden. Um, and they give 100% of the produce they grow to the town um, and then every Wednesday they have com- their worship service is a meal together. It's communion um, through a full meal that's shared. And then they also have a, a peace and love program where they deliver vegetables and pastoral care to home- homebound folks in their neighborhood. So they're both doing really cool stuff. And they are in town visiting. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to pass the opportunity to hear Lane preach. And I know y'all would want to. So we are going to welcome Lane in just a minute, Uh, but we are going to read scripture, and it's sort of a longer scripture, so we are going to do a little narrative reading of it. So we're like five of us readers, so can our readers come on up? Oh, and I should introduce Lane, who you now recognize from the picture, and Crawford, her husband. So the scripture reading this morning comes from selected verses from 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is the word of the Lord. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Saul and the Israelites gathered and encamped in the valley of Allah and formed ranks against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and the Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them and there came out from the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. 
If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of Jesse, who had eight sons. The three eldest of sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. David was the youngest, who tended to his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And Jesse said to his son David, Take for your brothers these food and supplies, and bring word of them. So David rose early in the morning and took the food and supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the encampment as the army was going forth to battle. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. And all the Israelites, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. The Israelites said, Have you seen this man who has come up? The king will greatly enrich the man who kills him. David said to the men who stood by him, Who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should not defy the armies of the living God? Eliab, David's oldest brother, anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? Uh, with who have you left those sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You came down just to see the battle. What have I done now? It's only a question. And when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no, one, no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy, and he's been a warrior from his youth. Your servant used to keep flock, keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from his mouth. And if he turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike him down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defiled the armies of the living God. The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. <laughs> Saul clothed David with his armor. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried to walk in vain. I can't walk with these. I'm not used to them. So David removed them, and then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in a shepherd's bag. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This very day the Lord will deliver you unto my hand so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that this, all the assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's. And when the Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thank you so much to our readers. <laughs> our New Testament reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Please listen for the word of the Lord. On that day when evening had come, he, meaning Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep, on a cushion. And they woke him up, and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he woke up, and he rebuked the wind, and he said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. At this time, let us turn to God in prayer. Gracious, holy God, by your word and Holy Spirit, we ask that you give light to that which we see, that in your truth we find freedom and your will discover peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So uh, I was raised in a very um, traditional Pentecostal family, and so Bible stories were my fairy tale stories. When I was going to bed at night, my dad would put me to bed, and I would hear fantastic stories of Scripture, generally. But I was a three-year-old, so oftentimes... <laughs> I didn't realize that these were holy stories. I just thought they were fantastic stories. And the story of David and Goliath was one of them. And in fact, my dad had a song that I loved for him to sing because it was really fun. It would go, only a boy named David, only a rippling brook, only a boy named David, five little stones he took. And one little stone went in the sling, the sling went around and around. And it got really fun as a three-year-old. So one little stone, then the sling, ring, around and around, and around and around. You could just see how a three-year-old would really get into this. And then at the end, my dad would act like Goliath and redo what Crawford did and fall to the ground and I would cackle and I thought that was just so funny and it was just a delight as a three-year-old, right? Well, I think I thought that that's all there was to the story. It was just a simple story where a young boy defeats a giant. I didn't really give it much thought, but really when you go to the text, as you saw today, it's a long narrative and it's jam-packed of different things in there and there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of suspense happening, and in the midst of all of it is this concept of faith, faith of God to David and David to God and the trusting relationship between the two. 
And so, if you will, this afternoon, I'm going to ask you to enter into a story. I'm going to tell a drawn-out narrative of this story, and I ask you to enter into it, into my imagination of maybe what this um, journey was like for David. So it's a hot, sunny day. David is sitting in the middle of the desert. He's watching his sheep. He's alone, but not really, because he's with God. He's singing songs out loud because David is a musician, a writer. He's thinking about his life. He's remembering this adventure he had the other day where he protected his sheep from a lion. Can you believe it? He beasted a lion. And he was so thankful that God gave him the courage to fight off a lion. Although he's a little terrified and doesn't want it to happen again. He finds every time he hears a stick blowing in the wind that he's jumping. No, not another lion, right? But in light of all of this, he's enjoying his solitude. He's the youngest of eight children, and it's often difficult to find time for himself, to be himself, and to be away from the pressure of his family. But that evening, as he's bringing his sheep home, he's met by his father, Jesse, who tells him that tomorrow he's going to have to take supplies to his brother. Now, this is an errand that Jesse had sent him on several other times, and he's not too thrilled about it. He was enjoying his solitude, his prayer in the desert. He wanted to be with the sheep, not with people. But nevertheless, he did what his father asked and made plans for the journey. So the next morning, David wakes up before the sun and he prepares to go. But before he can get out of the house, Jesse runs out, David, David, take this bread to your brothers. Make sure their commanders get this fancy cheese. And please bring word and a token of them that they're doing okay. David is sad to see how worried his father is and knows that checking in on his brothers is actually the real purpose of this trip. He says, Dad, I will do this for you. Because David had made the trek before, he's quite familiar with the road to the battle. But as he approaches the Valley of Allah, where the troops are, he notices that it's actually really different this time. There's no battle going on. Rather, all of the Israelite troops are gathered together, staring down at the valley below, and even crazier, the Philistine army is gathered on the opposite hill, looking down on the valley. David says, what is going on here? But there's anxiety, there's stress, there's suspense literally hanging in the air. Everyone is nervous. David knows something's not right. When he reaches the Israelite army, he sees that they're all listening to a Philistine standing in the valley. This man is very tall. He's clothed in stunning armor, and he's taunting Israel, laughing at them and saying that he defies them and their God. And he is asking for them to send one man out to fight him, and whoever wins the battle will also take the other soldiers as prisoner. Now David finds this whole thing to be ridiculous. Who allowed this man to make up the rules of battle? Why is no one defending Israel? Why is King Saul, who is known throughout the kingdom to be a really tall and really skilled warrior, not fighting this man? Why isn't anyone else offended by the way the gigantic man is talking about our God? A God who has delivered us time and time again, a God who is present with us, a God that in David's experience is present in the very moment. A loving God who is there in the midst of danger and in the midst of peace. A God from whom all things are possible. But the soldiers are terrified and no one is volunteering for this battle. But David can't hold back. Without even thinking, he says out loud, Why isn't anyone fighting him? The soldiers give him fearful looks and one man says, Well, you can do it if you want. King Saul has made a lot of promises to whoever fights this guy. 
David rolls his eyes and decides to look for his brothers. That night, as the camp is settling down and everyone prepares for the next day, David finds his brothers and says, Hello, I'm so happy to see you. Father had asked that I bring you these supplies. He sent bread. But for some reason, David's brothers look kind of unhappy to see him. Because no matter where you are in life, family issues are family issues. And David notices that they seem a little embarrassed, maybe ashamed of what's happening on this battlefield. But he still asks the question that's burning in his mind, because as the youngest, he can't help himself but blurt it out. Why is no one fighting the Philistine? Why are we letting him say this about our God? And Eliab's embarrassment over the whole situation comes flowing out. His anxiety over the battle and his fear of Goliath take over, and he snaps at David, pointing that famous blaming finger. What are you doing here? Are you here to make fun of us? Who is taking care of your sheep? You are just here because of the evil in your heart. You just came to see the battle and are up to no good. Now this has pushed all of David's buttons, right? He's amazed at how his brothers know how to hit him right where it hurts. So he responds, what? Just a question. I'm leaving. David is trying to avoid any more of all that family arguing. So he leaves his brother. He sets up his own camp with other soldiers. And the sun sets. But David just can't help himself. He keeps asking, why are we so scared of this guy? Why is no one taking a stand on behalf of our God? And then the next morning when David wakes up and he's getting ready to go back home, back to his father with his bro- with news of his brothers, and most likely to tell him about how lack of courage they have, and go back to his sheep and back to his solitude. But the plan is interrupted when one of King Saul's messengers appears before him. The king requests your presence. Uh-oh. Saul has heard what I've been saying. Am I going to jail? <laughs> David thinks. But when David reaches Saul's tent, he finds Saul sitting, looking troubled. When David sees King Saul, he surprises even himself when he says, I will go and fight the Philistine. What? No, Saul responds. You can't do that. You're a kid. And Goliath is a professional soldier. David takes a second look and looks within himself, and he says... And he thinks and he reflects on his own experience about the dangers he's already encountered in the wilderness, protecting his sheep. And he tells the king of these stories. Stories of his many adventures and how God has defied reason and rationale, but has been with David. And how there are extraordinary examples of God's faithfulness to him. David has a vision of defeating this Philistine, and he pursues his vision with persistence and stamina. And this does not go unnoticed by the king. So while speaking with Saul, David uses the name of God to proclaim his eventual victory over Goliath. Here, David's ability to be self-defined and not swept away by the anxiety of the situation, and David's ability to trust in God's faithfulness is very persuasive. Because David is not big or strong or some experienced warrior, but he is calm, he is not anxious, And he is sure of his standing as a child of God. And so Saul is persuaded to let David fight Goliath. Now Saul's immediate reaction to to David is, Why don't you dress like me? Be like me. Here, wear my armor. It will make Goliath think that you are me, maybe. Try my shoes on. David is nervous about the fight and at first thinks, Well, maybe that's a good idea to wear this fancy armor. But he soon notices that it just doesn't feel right. He does not need to wear Saul's shoes. Rather, he's going to wear his own shoes, be himself in the fight. 
Being himself was enough when he challenged lions and bears in the wilderness, and it's enough now as he fights the Philistine. God made David to be just as he is, a handsome young boy, and that's all David needs to fight. He does not need to be like other people, but rather he takes his shepherd's staff, his well-worn slingshot, puts on a comfortable robe, and he walks out to the small stream nearby and picks up five smooth stones and places them in his pocket. And we know the end of the story. We saw it today. David defeats Goliath. In the encounter, Goliath attempts to bully David yet again. In a typical bully fashion, Goliath taunts him and states that David is not a worthy opponent, though that's not that unexpected. He had taunted a whole army enough to immobilize them, so you would expect that he would also taunt when one person stood up for the fight. But David's action at this battle changed the course of history. The action of one young boy had the ability to get two very large groups of people unstuck. These two armies sat and stared at each other for 40 days. And if David had not stood up to fight, they may have sat there for 40 more. What David did was not logical, nor was it the best of plans, yet David was able to act. David, David was able to stand up, to be and do, because he clearly knew his limits. It was not acceptable for someone to talk about his God that way. And he knew his faith in God was able to sustain him through any struggle. And David did not just fight one giant in the story. In some ways, fighting Goliath was the easiest fight. The other battles were much more elusive and harder. He fought against his family role, being the messenger, just doing what he's told. This is clearly seen in the dialogue between David and his brother. I wonder, when do we cave in to the blaming fingers? When, we, when do we tame our own anxiety by pointing those blaming fingers towards others? When do family struggles and family reactivity keep us from acting on behalf of God or on behalf of our neighbors and can keep us stuck, not moving forward? David fought against the fear of the crowd. The majority was against the idea of him fighting against Goliath. David also fought against Saul's advice of, be like me. Saul encouraged David to use his armor and be like him, but that didn't work for David. Pretending to be someone else rarely works in our lives, because we as ourselves are enough. David's faith in God gave him the ability to know himself, to know that he is a child of God, and that it gave him enough courage to move out of a very anxious situation and not be persuaded by the other voices around him. David's faith called him to action in this work because God is a faithful God. So when we act, we can know that God is with us. In our New Testament text today, we read and we encounter a miraculous story in which Jesus calms the sea and the sky. It's not a very long narrative like the David one, but in short, a storm has come and the disciples wake Jesus up in a panic that they're going to die from the storm. And Jesus says four words, be still, be quiet. And the world is at peace. But then he looks at his disciples and he says, Why were you so scared? Why do you still not have faith? Because the God we serve is able to fight any battle, calm any storm. God created all things and God is able to do all things. But in this narrative, Jesus is turning the question back to the disciples. Why were you so paralyzed by your fear? Why did you let your anxiety get the best of you? Jesus may have been thinking, 
You are skilled sailors. Why would you not use your skills? Because God is always with us. Jesus was right there with the disciples. But just knowing God is with us is not all that's required from faith. Our faith in God and knowledge of God gives us movement to our actions. To do, to be in the world, to know that God will be with us. That God can do all things and all things are possible. But these things are done with us, not just for us. And our faith helps us to know ourselves, our limits. That God is right there in the middle of all the anxieties and the worries and the fears that God calms the storms, and that we go into the world putting our faith into action because God is with us. Amen.